0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear this podcast while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available right now for your smartphone. And hey, when you download Stitcher, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it, it's free, it takes just a few seconds, and then when you register, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher, where it says that, enter the promo code OTHER PEOPLE. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. The latest episode of the program will then be waiting for you in your Favorites, And you'll get access to a ton of other amazing content Always available on demand with no syncing That's the Stitcher app Go download it at Stitcher.com Free of charge Available for your iPhone, your Android Or your tablet computer And don't forget to enter the promo code Other people when you register This is an app You can apply it Go and get it Oh my god
1: You are not alone you
0: have found
2: other people. You and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done.
2: I think it's really beautiful. Gee, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just
0: one person at just one time. Oh, right. right? Okay, folks, here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. This is Upper Middle Brow Entertainment. This is designed to keep you company. Thank you for listening. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California, the uh, entertainment capital of the world. I'm exhausted. I didn't sleep very well last night. I'm very caffeinated. Actually, you know, I slept for two hours. And then I woke up and I, uh, I just lay there and could not fall back asleep again. So shortly after sunrise, uh, in a state of exhaustion and deep frustration, I started tweeting with uh, tremendous hostility about TED Talks. I don't know if you're familiar with TED Talks. They are uh, speeches given on stages that tend to be uh, tricked out with uh, cutting-edge technology. It's the kind of staging that, like, the late Steve Jobs used to use with, like, the minimalist high-tech design and the high-definition PowerPoint presentations as a backdrop and so on and so forth. And uh, the speeches, uh, you know, I guess they're kind of motivational in nature, informational in nature. There's kind of a guru thing happening. And uh, you have a quote-unquote expert or sage up there on stage doling out wisdom. So this morning in my uh, insomnia haze, tortured as I was by this lack of sleep, I came upon a link... As I was uh, you know, surfing around on my iPad, I came upon a link to a TED Talk, and uh, against my better judgment, I started watching it, and uh, I watched it for about 45 seconds before uh, recoiling in disgust and fear, <laughs> and then uh, I immediately turned to Twitter and uh, began to ventilate my displeasure. So I figured I would read a few of these tweets from my at uh, other people pod account on Twitter, Uh, For your uh, potential enjoyment So here we go I want to see a Christopher Guest Mockumentary about TED Talks I desire nothing more on this earth Than for a highly skilled, well-financed satirist To savagely mock TED Talks If I ever made a TED talk, I would make finger steeples the entire time. Possible rap lyrics. I wanna give a TED talk right now in my underwear. I'm upper middle class and have wisdom to share. Might lie in bed and watch every single TED Talk ever made until I die. I would pay top dollar to see a highly agitated, somewhat coked up John McEnroe give a TED Talk about his unbridled hatred of TED Talks. Okay, so... (laughs) There you have it. I'm going to stop there. That's some recent tweeting uh, about TED Talks. I was in a state. I was in a mood. I will concede that. You can follow me on Twitter if you want to subject yourself to such a thing. Uh, my handle over there is other pod. And, hey, do you want a free audiobook download? Are you interested in a free audiobook download? If so, go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. And get yourself a free audiobook download. Okay? Uh, My first guest, I have two guests today. My first guest is Gina Frangello. Perhaps you've heard me talk with her uh, before on this program. She was one of my earliest guests way back in episode 16, and she has a new novel out from Algonquin. It's called A Life in Men, and it is the official February selection of the TNB Book Club, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. The NervousBreakdown.com is of, uh, of course, uh, most of you know this. It's my online culture magazine and literary community. The site has its own book club. You, you know, you should sign up for that and you can do that over at the dot Just click on book club in the menu bar. It's a terrific deal. Uh, you get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days and better yet, you get to hear me talk with uh, the book club authors on this program. So, uh, here's a segment of my conversation with Gina Frangelo uh, She's an old friend of mine And she also happens to be the fiction editor At The Nervous Breakdown uh, Which makes me extremely happy For her To see all this happening To see her having some success To see this book making its way out into the world So here she is folks This is Gina Frangelo And her new novel once again Is called A Life in Men I want to start by talking about Um You know, working with Algonquin, because I've had authors on this program uh, who have been published by them, and everybody seems to rave. Like, is it all that it's cracked up to be?
2: you know it really is it's like I, I don't even know what to say like they're not feeding us some you know secret bullshit kool-aid it really is all that it's cracked up to be they're amazing and I have to say actually I mean I credit the nervous breakdown largely to what I knew about Algonquin going in because as the fiction editor I get pitched things all the time from every publicist in New York basically you know I mean people want to get their authors featured and um, I knew a lot about how did this. Business and how organized they were and, you know, just how behind the writers they were um, when my book was shopping. I mean, I really wanted to, to go out there. I told my agent that I wanted to go to Chuck Adams and, you know, she sent there and, and I had two different offers on the book. And I mean, I just wanted Algonquin. I knew they were the real deal and that, you know, they support their authors in a way that I, you know, they do um, business in a very, indie way um I mean obviously you know I come from a huge indie publishing uh tr- you know background I've been uh, an editor for 15 years but you know Algonquin's got a very small list they put out 20 to 25 books a year and so you know their level of personal interaction it's like working with an indie with money you know I mean I don't it, that's really the way to describe it like they are just really old school
0: well yeah I mean it's okay so and the other thing too that um I imagine is the case when an author feels good about what the publisher is doing. is it part of it is that they 're not spread too thin like you say their list isn 't like a mile right. long and they have time resources available and they also have financial resources to devote to things like book tours and um, you know right. advertising or whatever it might be. but you know the other aspect of it because rolling out a book is a like like rolling out anything into a world that's oversaturated and you know is is sending people billions of messages every day like trying to cut through that noise and get um you know some attention requires organization so like you know do you <laughs> yes. do you know what I'm saying like is there a, is there like a process that you've been able to glean that they take authors through um do you know
2: Oh I, absolutely yeah yeah I mean first of all they do things incredibly in advance I mean we had galleys of my book like six months out and um, you know I mean they've got a team of, of publicists I mean I was on the phone with you know eight people getting to know them a year before my book came out you know and I mean I have three people that I work with really regularly there I mean I talk to them practically every day I don't mean on the phone but over email but just the level of interaction they've they just are on everything you know they have a, they have a very regular system of their own which i had been privy to as one of the you know one of sort of the media outlets that they did reach out to when i you know at tnb but they also are just really really receptive to ideas from their authors which i think is extraordinary in trade publishing i think that that doesn't happen very frequently um, with the degree that it's happened at algonquin you know just because of how small they are and how dedicated and how much time they're able to devote like that they can actually kind of also go off their own template and do different things if their authors are suggesting it and you know with my background in publishing I have a lot of connections and ideas that may be different from theirs and they're able to accommodate both it's not an either or they're not telling me to shut up like it, you know so they've definitely got their own thing but they're also just really receptive to expansion
0: Okay, so that is Gina Frangello. Her novel, once again, is called A Life in Men. If you want to hear that full conversation, the full hour-long conversation with Gina, uh, just head over to otherpeoplepod.com. If you sign up for premium for only two bucks, you can listen to the whole thing. We talked for an hour, and uh, that was just an excerpt. And uh, when you sign up for premium, not only do you get access to Gina's full hour, which is uh, her second full hour on this program, you get access to everything. Every single episode— Every single interview, you can hear my conversations with authors like George Saunders, Sam Lipsight, Cheryl Strayed, Tao Lin, Roxanne Gay, and so on. Uh, And the easiest way to sign up for premium is to download the free official Other People app. It's available for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. You download the app for free, and then you sign up for premium right there within the app. And then you have access to everything, every interview, everything. So I hope that makes sense. a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My next guest who I'm very pleased to have here on the program is Chris Paris Lamb. He is a literary agent uh, over at the Gernert Company in New York City. For those of you who follow publishing news, his name is likely familiar to you. His star has been uh, rising steadily over the past few years. His clients include Chad Harbach, who wrote The Art of Fielding, uh, which was a big bestseller. And uh, just this past year, Chris sold uh, the novel City on Fire, the debut by Garth Risk Hallberg, uh, which generated a huge amount of buzz. So uh, let's get to it. Without any further ado, this here is my conversation with literary agent Chris Paris Lamb. (laughs) I am at 57th, at the corner of 57th
1: Street in Lexington, in Midtown Manhattan, on the 80th floor, uh, in
0: my office. Okay, um, I was going to say I could hear some—I could hear some sirens, like very distantly. Yeah, yeah. I don't—I don't know. Uh, I don't know what's going on out there. Uh, okay, so you are a uh, literary agent at the Gernard Company. Yeah, that's correct. Okay, uh, and and I'm I'm interested, I guess, in starting at the beginning. And then working forward, because I'm always curious whenever I talk to people uh, on this program, like how they got into uh, the business of writing. Usually I'm talking with writers, but, I, you know, I think it's also interesting how people wind up becoming agents because there are very few people, it seems to me, who like plan from a very young age to become a literary agent. You know, it always seems to be kind of like a, something that just sort of happens or they fall into it or they, they don't know about it and then they're exposed to it. And so... Uh, like, let's start at the beginning. Like you're from the South. Yeah. So,
1: um, I am from a small town. Um, not small enough to be charming, not big enough to be interesting. As I like to say, uh, (laughs) um, called Burlington, North Carolina. Um, and, uh, before that, my dad was in the army. So we moved around, um, a lot, uh, all, all kind of down in the South, all my family is like Southern back many generations. um, Yes, yeah, so I definitely, as you as you said, I mean I did not know what a literary agency was what a literary agent was until halfway through um, my first interview um, to be an intern when I was in college at a literary agency. I thought that I was interviewing at um, a publisher. And uh and Bill Clegg is an, an agent of William Morris Endeavor uh, who I was was interviewing me. He asked if I knew what a literary agent was, and I what a literary agent did. And I said, you know, you you publish books, don't you? (laughs) Um, So so um, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I don't know how many agents are there uh there aren't that many i don't know a few hundred something like that there can't be that many literary agents around so it's not exactly something that if you don't grow up um you know in new york city um or in the you know the world of media and publishing with parents in media and publishing it's like not something you've ever heard of
0: um so wait what did did bill clegg what did bill clegg say to you when you said you publish books i'm surprised you got the job
1: (laughs) (laughs) I, i think he i think he kind of laughed and um uh, I mean, just the fact that he asked, knew that he he was kind of prepared. He, you know, he, um, I mean, Bill kind of like, is something of an out, you know, an outsider uh, himself in the sense that he, you know, grew up in a small town and didn't go to a fancy college. And uh, so, um, I mean, I think he he kind of he knew that um, that was a not unreasonable. Um, uh, it was is not unreasonable that someone my age, like, might not actually know uh, what what he would be getting into. Well, yeah, maybe he. I'm um, so he it, just kind of walked me. He walked me through like the you know the the basic service that a, services that a that
0: an agent provides. And what did you think at that point? Were you like, okay, this is something that I'm interested in doing?
1: Yeah, I mean, my particular situation, I, I kind of I had this weird scholarship where I had to have an internship that summer. It was like part of the the deal and everybody else was doing was either like working in government or on wall street and i wanted to do i just really needed an internship so you know I'll, i i kind of heard him say that yeah you'll spend most of your time reading and um that was kind of that was all i needed to hear
0: okay so it wasn't you,
1: like i was uh, you know choosing between career paths or anything
0: okay so were you a bookish child like moving around because i know like when i you know you think of army brats and you think of people who are, you know, either uh, like really socially adaptive people because they constantly have to show up and make friends quickly and reinvent themselves and everything, or else uh, I guess that sort of lifestyle could make a person uh, introverted and bookish. Like did that, do you think that was formative in that way for you? And is that what made you kind of a reader?
1: Um, you know, I, I honestly, I don't, uh, I was definitely bookish and a reader from a very, very early age. Um I don't really know where it came from um i mean i was I was pretty precocious uh and very bored by school um and I mean I- remember like when I was in first grade, my parents moved me up a grade in in reading um and and then also I distinctly remember uh my like the small town library in Tennessee where we lived had the library divided into sections by grade, and you couldn't, you couldn't, this is just so ridiculous, I can't even believe this was true, but you couldn't check books out um, from above your grade level. Um, And my parents, like, thought this was ridiculous, and, you know, raised to think about it, and eventually I was, like, allowed to check out fifth grade books as a as a first grader um yeah that seems, so, that, seems re-
0: that seems really oppressive and like uh you know also like w- working counter to like the whole objective of education <laughs> <You> know, <like. laughs> doesn't it doesn't it <laughs> um but yeah and so it was i think it was i don't think it was like
1: each grade i think it was, i think it was like i remember k through two and then third grade fifth grade they had two sessions of the library. I think it was like a you know a, a issue a issue of like you know social mores, basically, like that there might be scandalous stuff in the third through fifth grade books that they didn't want first graders reading. <laughs> uh, which doesn't not that that makes it okay, but just like that was the rationale.
0: Yeah, no. Okay. I can see that. So when you were moving around, like how many times were you moving? Like, is this like you, moved 15 times as a child or was it?
1: No, 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 nothing like that. I mean, I guess I was born in Alabama. Then we, then we moved to uh, Fort Gordon, Georgia, and then to, uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. We lived there the state line in Tennessee. Um, and then we were in, we were in Tennessee for like five years. Um, during which time my dad was in the first Gulf War, and then when he came back, he got out of the army a year after that, and then, then we moved to North Carolina when I was ten.
0: Okay, so was he? A, was it like a really strict upbringing? Like was this like the, the yeah, old, the army yeah, dad? very, very this, much. So. Really? Okay, so like, uh, what did that? How did that manifest?
1: Um, I mean, it was just my parents were very strict. Um, there were there were a lot of rules. They were also very uh, religious. Um, so very, very Christian, um, and, uh, yeah, a lot of, um, a lot of emphasis on, um, you know, being a, um, a morally upstanding, uh, person, um, and, and which led to a lot of conflict when, when I kind of got into high school, kind of probably predictably.
0: I was going to say, um, but- I was going to say yeah. like a bookish, a bookish guy who's reading above his grade level and like really religious, uh, parents with an emphasis on discipline. I was like, this, this sounds like it's going to be trouble in adolescence. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're, we're on, um, I mean, we've put all that behind us at this point, but yeah, it was definitely, uh, very, very fractious, um, when, when I was in high school. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I I kind of all that all all that time I you know, but I would say that like my parents were not, um, I mean, they were readers of. I mean, my dad was kind of he always read a lot about the Civil War and um, um, and a lot of history, and but you know, my parents were not really readers, um, uh, at least in the at least in the sense. My my mom wasn't my like my dad was more of one, but like I definitely did not grow up in a literary tradition. Like I had no clue um, that you know, what writers were alive or dead. Um, I had no clue like what books you were supposed to read or or what what a cl- what classics were um it, i i kind of it took teachers to kind of show me that i had a few like really good teachers along the way but i i you know i'm frankly like very envious of you know some of my friends who grew up with these um you know grew up in new york city they went to very fancy schools their, their parents worked in media you know they grew up with like uh you know uh, Ross and Updike on their shelves. Um, like I never heard of Philip Roth until I got to college.
0: Those were bedtime stories for these New York City kids. For God's sakes, you know. Yeah, yeah. Totally, totally. <laughs> so, okay, but you said you were—you know, you said you were a precocious kid. You were reading above your grade level. You were bored with school. So, mm-hmm. in terms of academics, uh, as a young person, and particularly as an adolescent, did that manifest in? You know, you got good grades easily, or got good grades where you knew you needed to get good grades, or were you were you a bad student because you were so bored? No, no, I was a very good student.
1: I, I mean, I was like, I was, you know salutatorian of my, of my like three or 400 person class. Like I was definitely a uh, high, high, high achiever. So I was kind of a weird combination of like very rebellious, um, but also very motivated by, um, you know, uh, yeah. Motivated by achievement, I guess.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, your parents probably wouldn't stand for you to, to slack off too much. And, And I'm curious too, you say you're a salutatorian. Does the salutatorian get to give a speech? I know the value yeah, well, in high school. You did. Okay. So at graduation the salutatorian gets to give a speech. Yep. Okay. Yep. Do you remember your speech? <laughs> I do, actually. I do.
1: I remember it uh I remember it pretty uh pretty distinctly. It's like it's pretty uh it yeah, it had like a very literary conceit actually of like I was like telling my you know i was like well, one day we're going to like go back through our memory you know the memory palace of our minds like i learned this idea of like the memory palace and like uh you know walking we're going to walk through and like these are the things that will be in my rooms and i just like you know listed my memories from Anyway, is there, yeah. is, there audio?
0: Is, there, is there audio of this speech available somewhere?
1: <laughs> oh, God, I hope not. No, no, I'm sure there's not.
0: <laughs> if anyone listening has audio of Chris's uh, salutatorian speech, send it to me. Uh, you know, what's funny is that it just calls to mind. I, I was not the valedictorian or the salutatorian of my class, unfortunately, but my friend was. And I remember our class song was It's the End of the World as We Know It by R.E.M. Awesome. I don't remember his speech. I just remember that because he was kind of a, you know, high strung guy. He he runs at a high speed, very bright, obviously. But uh, I remember his speech was very impassioned. And then I remember at the very end of the speech um, and the whole speech was kind of built around the theme of it's the end of the world as we know it, because we were graduating and moving on or whatever. And I remember at the yeah. very end of his speech, like with like, you know, fire in his voice, he said, it's the end of the world as we know it. I feel fine. <laughs> <laughs> and then that was it and there was a place, yeah sort of funny to remember. But, uh okay so uh leaving high school leaving the nest off to the University of North Carolina correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good good times? Yeah, yeah. Um
1: uh yeah, I mean I I'm trying to think. I was an English and history major. I minored in creative writing. Um which is a you know definitely what kind of without me realizing it at the time, kind of what got me on the path to being in publishing, um, because you know, at age nineteen, I wanted to I thought I wanted to be a writer.
0: Um, yeah, I was gonna ask because I feel like a lot of people who get into publishing, both on the editorial side. And on the agent, uh, agency representation side, like there's got to be at least some writerly impulse. There often is, anyway. Yeah, I always estimated it like,
1: or for me, I estimated it like, you know,
0: ten percent. I'm like a ten. I'm like ten
1: percent of a writer. Um, I can work with. You know, I'm, I have good editorial instincts. Like that's, you know, uh, insofar as writing is in, is revising. I mean, you know, I can help people revise. Uh, But the the kind of the idea of of kind of conjuring, um, conjuring words from nothing onto a blank page uh, is is kind of um, kind of more uh, awe inspiring to me now than it was then, you know, like the closer I get to to writers, like the more the more um, amazed I am that they can do it. But sure, I mean, you know, so I, I, I had a very much had a romantic idea of, you know, what it would be like to be a writer and. Um, and that's how I kind of got interested in, in what was going on in contemporary literature, which was something that I was like totally unaware of and hadn't read any of, um, uh, you know, until I got to college and, um, you know, definitely what kind of spurred my interest into, in, in, um, yeah, doing something like, working getting an internship in book publishing
0: i was gonna say um, i was gonna say did you did you start like as in, in college you start to read you start to become aware of uh literary culture you know both uh, past and present yep. and then uh, like at what point do you start to like set your sights on new york city and say to yourself i think i want to go there and try to do this somehow or maybe like you know just some kind of yeah. insti- instinctive move in that direction is that when it started
1: yeah, I mean, you know, growing up in a small town, um on the cusp of the internet, you know, I graduated high school in two thousand. Um, and at least where I lived, like I mean, I didn't have the internet until I got to college. So, I mean, obviously it was around, but you know, it hadn't permeated the society it's permeated society. And, um and you know, so there weren't um there was this feeling of like isolation and of this being of, and of there being this like better, more interesting, bigger world out there. Um, and I definitely like always, that's kind of always what drove me. Like I always wanted to get out. Um, and in fact, it was pretty ironic and, and, um, a somewhat fraught decision for me at the time to choose to go to UNC, which was just 45 minutes away, um, because I'd always wanted to go, um, Somewhere, you know, I like really wanted to go to Princeton because that's where Escott Fitzgerald went. Like that's how naive I was, you know. Um,
0: well, still though, that's yeah, like that's at least like... you had good instincts. I didn't have the, I didn't have those instincts. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I went to the I went to the University of Colorado because I thought the brochure had a pretty picture on it. I mean, <laughs>
1: so. yeah. But now, now, now that I, you know, with all due respect to people uh, that I know, um, you know, who went to Princeton that I would have been in school with, like. I never would I would not have fit in there, you know. I mean I that was that's a that's a terrible reason to make a decision about where you're gonna go to college, you know, the fact that it it p- produced a writer who died seventy five years before. Um but uh so you know, but once I got to college, so I was kind of always like very much of that like, you know, I gotta get out of this place kind of mindset. And uh and I read Infinite Jest when I was I read it the the Christmas break uh, I read it in two weeks, um, which was like eight hours a day of reading <laughs>
0: yeah, um,
1: <laughs> of, of my sophomore year. And that was... Uh, I read that, and then also Heartbreaking Work is Staggering Genius, like almost back-to-back, I think. And I was just so amazed that books like this like existed. Um, and, I, and also... I kind of, especially for the jest. I was just like, wow, I can't write like this. I'll never write like this. So why should I try? Um, but you know, someone, someone edited this, like this, there were people who were involved with this book. I wonder what that would be like. And so that's, that's really kind of, I mean, I know it's a little bit, Pat, I feel like now, um, you know, it's like Pat to kind of like draw your, especially after his death, like to, you know, to like draw my career path back to this kind of seminal moment of, of reading Infinite Jest, but, it, it, but I, that actually was true for me. I remember like that book was all I talked about in my interview with Bill um, and for that first
0: internship. He's like, well, oh. this kid doesn't know what a literary agent does, but he actually read *Infinite Jest* in two weeks. I mean, that's like yeah, basically, basically. <laughs> So, okay, so you get the you get the uh, inter- internship with Bill Clegg, who was then at his own agency, correct? Lawrence and Clegg, yeah, yeah, with Sarah Okay, so you're there, and uh, this is when, um, and so then, did you get hired full time, or were you interning there during college? Yep.
1: I so that was like summer before my junior year. They called me during my senior year, and I uh, and I and I came up and started working full time that summer. Since so that was you, summer two thousand four.
0: So you made a good impression as an intern, clearly. Yeah. What I mean, like, uh, how? Because like, this is actually something I, I taught college for five years, and I used to talk to students who were getting internships, and you know, that's a great way to get a job. You know, especially if you're. Um, you know, if you're a hustler, and I, I also talk to friends who work in like movie studios, and they'll see they'll have these interns who like come from these really wealthy families, and these kids are just like so entitled, and they're like, "What? Yeah, <laughs> they just don't want to do any work." And um, I, t- it sounds like you were the opposite. Like you showed up, you would do anything. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, was, yeah, like, yeah. Talk about like how you translated getting the uh, internship, which was either unpaid or, or you know barely paid, and then having them remember okay, yeah. re- remember you and make you an offer man, I don't know. I mean, it's
1: in retrospect, I do realize how crazy it is, you know, given that like we've probably had, you know, 40 interns in my time that I've been here at the Garner company and, you know, only three of them have been hired. Um, but, uh, I, I don't know. I just, um, I'm, I think that, I think that, uh, I think that I was a smart reader and writer, honestly. I mean, that is, that is the way you interface with your boss. That that's, that's the, 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 not the only chance, but that's the most important, um, opportunity you get to kind of interface with your boss, like with, with, you know, in my case, Bill and Sarah was them reading my reports and I, I wrote good reports, I think. And, um, I don't know. I mean, uh, they, um, And I think, you know, eventually by the end of that, and I was only there for three months, but, like, by the end of that time, I was kind of doing editorial work on their clients' manuscripts, and I don't know. I I, I was just doing what – just, like, doing the best I could. But uh, I I guess it was just – I was just, like, confident in what I thought about things.
0: Which is – which not everybody is. Where does that come from? Does it come from just being well-read, or is it just, like, an innate – Confidence in your own opinions, like wh- how do you parse that? I
1: don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm probably constitutionally um, like that to, 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 you know, to some extent. I also have to say, like, there's something to be said for um, kind of being, for the fact that kind of being an outsider means that you don't know, like you don't know what you don't know, and you don't know. Uh, it's like. You don't know what to be anxious and insecure about. Like I didn't know I'd never heard of Knopf. I'd never heard of Farrar Strauss and Giroux. Like I'd never editors' names meant nothing to me. Like I was unimpressed by titles. I was unimpressed by like not because I was hard to hard to impress, but because like none of that meant anything to me. I was only impressed by like what a book! What a good book could do to you! Like it was all about whether or not a book was good. Period. Like but, I didn't know what the fancy MFA programs were. I didn't know what the fancy literary magazines were. Like somebody's book either made me excited or it bored me.
0: Well, but, but that sounds and, like that sounds like a really um, and even you know accidental or not, it sounds like a really shrewd. Um, and efficient way of approaching your job as a literary agent, you know, because all the, all the, things and I hope never to lose it. I hope never to lose that. Yeah. I was going to say, cause like all the other, all the things that you're describing that you didn't know about are, um, you know, they're not all totally unimportant, but we both know that like there's a lot of surface level triviality, you know, that you can get caught up in yeah. it in, in, in whatever profession you're in. And so to not be okay. affected by that, like it probably enabled you to focus on like the one thing that at the end of the day is critically important. You know, like, yeah. Like my job as an intern
1: was like confined to what I thought about, like a 12 point font on an eight and a half by 11 manuscript page. You know, there were just no outside markers, um, to, to steer by, uh, except like the words themselves. And, uh, and I, yeah, and I kind of, I, I think it should always be that way.
0: So, okay. So you're working at Burns and Clegg and then this is when, um, you know, as, as is well documented in his books, this is when Bill Clegg, uh, went into rehab, had drug troubles and the company imploded. Correct. So there you were like, you know, freshly employed, probably, um, you know, not in the greatest position financially because you were young and uh, you know, what happened during that period? And, you know, did you ever do anything else or did you, did you, you stayed working in the literary representation game, correct?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, all that was, was really just six months of my, you know, my life. I started in August, 2004 and, um, uh, Sarah shut down the agency, um, after, after Bill kind of, uh, went off the rails um in March two thousand five. So um yeah, I mean I was making twenty three thousand dollars a year. I remember my paycheck every two weeks was six hundred forty six dollars after taxes and I and my rent was eight twenty five a month. And um so I like I mean obviously, you know, nobody no matter how naive you are, like you don't, you know that like having a boss who um, is uh, a serious drug addict and who is, you know, uh, you fear is going to die, um, and in the business falling apart as a result, you know that that's like not normal. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, like I, I don't know, you know, I just kind of just did my, jo- I just like did my job, you know, and uh, wait, 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 because what, I, because what, what I, I, I.
0: I just want to make sure for listeners who you know because maybe not all listeners are aware of this Bill Clegg is an agent. he's now an agent again. He wrote uh, two memoirs dealing his struggles with or that, that address his struggles with addiction, um, both of which were bestsellers I believe and um, mm, no? yeah, I don't know about that oh, okay well I just I, they feel they felt that way to me just because they were chattered about on my particular Twitter feed yeah. a lot but um, you were there in the middle of it all and got to kind of witness this at a young age, did did you um, take on resp- – I mean, I'm imagining you were taking on responsibilities in his absence uh, that you might otherwise yeah. not have had to take on. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: I mean, I guess
1: I want – I do want to say here um, that, like, you know, I I did take on a lot of responsibilities that I wouldn't have otherwise taken on. But it was really just a few weeks, you know. It was a it was a, a it was a crazy few weeks and like I don't like want that very brief time in my life like to kind of suggest that, you know, that's what formed me or something. Like in the shitty Hollywood script of my life, it right. certainly would. Um, but you know, the the I've been a for almost ten years now and like the nine and a half very stable um years I've spent here have far more bearing on like the agent I am today than, than that, like really, uh, really kind of, um, crazy time working for Bill. But yeah, but that's it. I mean, it was true. Yeah, it was, you know, he, he was checked out and, um, client, his clients didn't know for a time and, uh, work happened under his name. Um, uh, even though he wasn't there and, you know, that's because he had, um, and an apparatus of, you know, a couple of assistants, a rights director and a partner, um, you know, at the agency to that kind of enabled him to to kind of keep up appearances for longer than I think an addict of that severity would have been able to otherwise.
0: Right. Right. So and, and all told, that period of your career was only how long? How long were you with Burns and Clay? So, I mean, I
1: started my first day at Burns and Clegg was August 23rd, 2004, and my last day was March 15th, 2005.
0: Okay. So that was brief. And then you went to Gernert um, yeah. with Sarah. With Sarah. Okay. And so, Sarah, you know, a fact that
1: goes notably unmentioned in Bill's memoir is that Sarah was seven months pregnant when all that was happening. Good. And, and, um, you know, uh, she needed somebody to hold down the fort, like both with her own clients and also all of Bill's clients who had to get paid. Um, uh, you know, they all moved on to other agents. Um, uh, and, but, you know, there's money coming in for them, and the um, agency, like, no longer existed as a physical entity, but it, it had to, you know, process that money and get them paid. Um, so I did all that, and like, the deal was basically that Sarah would um, – or that, sorry, that David Gurnert would kind of you know, hire me as an employee to kind of be Burns & Clegg, the financial entity, and hold down the fort for Sarah while she was on maternity leave, and then she would come back that fall 2005 and, and help me find a new job.
0: You know, well, not, I, 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 this is totally apropos of nothing. But thinking of the the yeah. the, as you put it, the shitty screenplay of your life. If we're going to fictionalize this in the third act, I think that considering all the chaos that existed during that like six month period, uh, the movie would have to end with you in an emergency delivery, delivering Sarah's child. <laughs> Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> because it seems like you, it seems like you were behind the scenes, you know. Because you had this uh, one boss who was uh, dealing with addiction, and another boss who was in the third <laughs> trimester of a pregnancy. So you, you must have been busy.
1: Yeah, it was pretty. Yeah, I was pretty busy. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, I couldn't like, um, yeah, I couldn't leave my job. I mean, I, I like had no. You know what else what else was I going to do? I' had to like I had to pay the rent
0: and this is how you and this um, is where you learned in like you know in terms of like your apprenticeship because we all in some way apprentice at whatever we do um this was really i mean you had your internship and then you had these early years like it seems like a i mean it had to have been formative and it had to have been really instructive um yeah. because you you know, a, you're new and you're, you're hustling in the way that you have to hustle when you're new, but you're also in this sort of very unusually intense situation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it, I would also add though, that like, once I got to, um, once I got to Gunner, I mean, I, you know, I wanted out of the book business. I mean, it was, it was, it was just, it was very, um, it was very stressful. It was just, as you can imagine, it was all very, very stressful for a 22-year-old to be dealing with. And I felt um, very kind of, uh, I was very resentful of the whole situation because I felt like, you know, I thought Bill was going to die. And I felt like I had been made to be responsible by being paid to, like, Basically, be an enabler for him without knowing it. You know, to kind of be a person who would dissemble on his behalf and lie about where he was. And I felt like I'd been forced into that, and was was really, um, I was just really, really upset by that. And and um, you know, especially at the time, you know, again when I I thought I would never see Bill again, and. So I just was really jaded, you know, I was like, I don't, I don't want to live in New York anymore. This place is bad. <laughs> um, and so, uh, so, you know, the plan was like Sarah would come back from maternity leave and I would, um, um, you know, my lease was up was up in September and, uh, you know, I would either leave the city or find another job or do something else. But, but I got to Garner and it was just this kind of like oasis of calm and stability. And, um, David Garner, his, he just kind of had this attitude towards, towards the young people who worked for him, which was that, you know, I pay you to be, I, I pay you to be an assistant and, and to help the agents here, um, work at as high a level as possible and as efficiently as possible. Um, but as long as you're doing that work first, the balance of your time, I want you to be using to, to, you know, do business for the company. Um, and so it was like in this place where all of a sudden it was like, well, if you, if you see, a, if you find a writer, you like in a literary journal, um, you can reach out to them and you can contact them. Or if you see an article that, you know, you think should become a book, like there was all this freedom. Um, so it was, I think, I think, and then I, and I, but I think part of what I kind of responded to was like the immediate contrast of that with where I'd come from, like where it was just this kind of like struggle to just, uh, you know, like keep your head in the midst of all this insanity.
0: Um so are you are did you I mean a post like after Bill um got well, like have you guys I mean are you guys in touch since then or was it one of those things where you were in Yeah, this? yeah. Okay. So you guys are on good terms. We're in or? touch. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean we like I
1: think it's been a couple of years since I've seen him, but we we trade emails every now and again. Um I don't um you know, he was an addict. He has a disease and um all I care about is that he is um uh, healthy and sober, whether he's a literary agent or not. Um, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I'll leave it at that. Saw so a lot of people get hurt by what happened, but addicts always leave, um, a trail of, uh, a trail of, um, pain and, and anguish in their wake. And that's why there's a ninth step. Right. Um, so,
0: right. Yeah. Okay. So uh and the situation at the Gurner Company, I'm interested because you know the freedom that David gave you and gives to younger employees to go out and essentially, and essentially function as agents, you know, even though you're in an assistant role. Like that's kind of an Yeah. Is that an unusual um set of circumstances? Is that how the is that how the business tends to work? Um particularly maybe at the at the you know, at the non Uh, monolithic, you know, the William Morris's and the CAA's and stuff like that. When you're at, like, an independent agency, is that how they work, or is this an unusual thing?
1: Um, I would say yeah, I would say yes, that's how they work, but um, the degree of freedom, uh, but this is a special place. Um, And, um, you know, in general, like, it's an apprentice-based business um, the agency side. You know, there's no, like, there's no promotional ladder for you to climb. Like, whereas editors have, like, editorial assistant, assistant editor, associate editor, editor, senior editor, executive editor. You know, on our side, it's like you're either an assistant, you're an agent, or you're in that liminal space in between where you're doing assistant work and you're starting to take on clients. So that's the only way anybody ever becomes an agent by kind of making that transition and spending some time in that liminal space. So that, you know, that means, um, you know, you're in a situation where you're the powers that be are kind of encouraging you to take on clients, even as they pay you a salary to continue to like help other assist other agents. Um, but here, you know, David was always just, you know, just nothing but encouraging. And also most important I would say is that he never, second guess or second guesses what young people here want to want to work on and what what they want to take chances on there are a lot of places where like you know they'll tell you as a young person okay you can start taking on clients but i have to approve them um i don't think david got every book that i took on um, early on. I don't know that he still does, you know, I mean, not everybody gets everything. Like, um, not every book is for everybody, but he, like the only thing that mattered to him was that I believe in it and that I
0: feel like I could sell it. Well, but it also, you know, it also it, strikes it me happened. that like going back to what you were saying <clears throat> about your, um, you know, your earlier uh, years where you didn't know what you didn't know. Uh, I think there's some wisdom on the flip side of that, of, of, uh, knowing what you don't know, you know? And so if you're David and you've got these younger people who are generationally removed from you, but are talented, yeah. you know, and you believe in their talent, um, you know, it, it seems like a wise approach, you know, like yeah. I, maybe you would have your ear to the ground and be sensitive and receptive to things that, you know, he might not be aware of. You can't stay completely aware of everything that's happening. Like, I don't mean to sound like too, too old, uh, you know, I'm only approaching 40, but, Uh, I, you know, I remember I I always like for, for some reason, uh, I I it by the time that I went out to my mailbox and took the rolling stone out of the mailbox and didn't recognize who was on the cover. And like, that was a very, (laughs) it was a very shattering moment for me, but it was like, you know, it signaled something, you know, you start to lose track. You can start to lose track of the culture as you get older. I think it's just, it just happens, you know, no matter how on top of it, you try to stay. And so, you know, if you want to, keep a business going, it seems like a wise move to me to have young people who might have different sensibilities, yeah. uh, working and taking chances based on their convictions, you know? I agree. I agree. So, so let's talk about, because you've gone in a, you know, uh, a relatively short period of time from being this junior agent in that liminal space, um, between assistant and actual full, full fledged agent to being, um, one of the, uh, I think most talked about young agents in the business, uh, and you've had a lot of success. So, uh, I want to discuss how you take on clients, uh, which I think you've sort of alluded to already with respect to your, um, comments about how important the work is, uh, to the exclusion of pretty much everything else, but it's that, and then how you, um, get out there and, and sell the books, you know, how does, how does it all go down and how have you managed to do what you've done? So. Let's start with clients. Uh, you know, how do you find them? Uh, both, I guess, earlier in your career, and, and then nowadays when uh, you're more well known and you're probably receiving more queries.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: that's that's absolutely right. I mean, when you're when you when you're starting
1: out, you're 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 facing a kind of classic chicken or egg, um, you know, conundrum. Like you're not an agent until you have clients, but you can't get clients until you're an agent. So you know, you're really you you're going after stuff. Um, I uh, uh, found, you know, a writer, a Hungarian writer in the Paris Review um, who'd never been published outside Hungary, um, you know, sold his second deal I ever did. Um, You know, we sold it on a partial translation at auction here and we've sold it in 31 languages since then. Um, I, uh, you know, would reach out to writers nonfiction writers, um, journalists whose voice I really liked or who's, um, who kind of clearly, uh, you know, were experts in a certain area and were writing about something that, um, you know, I felt like could grow into a book. Um, you know, that's, that's just a whole lot of hustle. It's just like reaching out and, um, trying to get your hands on to kind of really create your own. Um, not flesh pile, but like create your pile of reading, you know, you create your haystack from which you're going to find the needle. You know, it's still a needle in a haystack, but like, you gotta have, you gotta get your hand on stuff. Um,
0: well, wait, so let me, ask, and, let me ask you about that process because, uh, you know, it's, it sort of works against the popular conception, I think of, you know, the agent receiving all these submissions and having to sift through this giant pile to find the, you know, the diamond or whatever, or the needle in the haystack and then, um, You know, one aspect to the to the hustling that I, I'd i like to hear you talk about is how you read. You know, you mentioned the Paris Review and finding the uh, Hungarian author, uh, whose name is – we should plug him if you're going to mention him.
1: Yeah, Jer- uh, George Dragomang, Um His novel was The White King. He actually just – I just got pages from his new novel um, from the translator. So we should be selling that like a month or so.
0: Cool. Okay. So <laughs> – you know how how were you approaching the work? You know, like did you have a list of publications that you would hit? Were you yeah, randomly absolutely. trolling? Were you randomly trolling the internet? Because it seems to me like you would have to, system, you know, it would have to be systematized. It was totally systematized.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would read, um, you know, Grant at the Paris Review, Tin House, Ploughshares, Public Space, Gettysburg Review, Missouri Review, Colorado Review, Georgia Review, New England Review. um zero uh i mean the day they arrived because if i didn't read it that day like my only hope i felt or i had the added attitude that like my only hope um if there was a really great writer in there of being the agent they picked was if i was the first person they heard from
0: because i was convinced has that borne out is that the truth do you have to be first to the line
1: no you don't have to be first to the line you don't um it can help. I mean, if someone makes a quick decision, then you obviously don't have a chance if you wait for three weeks. Um, but that was just like, I just kind of had this like desperation in a way that was like, I have to do everything. I have to give myself every advantage I can. Like I can't be older than I am. I can't have more experience than I have or don't have. Um, but I can be first and I can be smartest. That was kind of like the attitude that I had about like smartest in terms of talking about their work or how, why I responded to it. Um, so I always, if I really liked something, I wanted to be the first agent they heard from, and I wanted to say something that didn't feel like boilerplate. You know, I really enjoyed your story. If you ever write a book, I'd love to read it. <laughs> you know, I, I never wanted to send something like that.
0: Right. Okay. So talk about the process of of knowing that you found a writer that you want to represent? I mean, because, I, you know, you like it. It's got some probably some undefinable feeling. But, like, do you have, like, a physical response? Because the reason I ask is that, you know, somebody who's good at what they do uh, as a literary agent, it comes down to having really good instincts and trusting those instincts about what you like. So when you know you like something, how does it go? Like, what is it?
1: I mean, you just, like... I guess I would put that question back on anybody who's a reader. How do you know that you like something? You just know it. Yeah. You don't decide. Uh, You know, you just, that's the easiest part of this job. The hardest part is, is (laughs) that that happens so infrequently. Um, But it's never a decision. It's a, it's like a, it's a feeling. Um, And, you know, there's always. I don't mean to like make it sound like every time I read, uh, you know, that that when I read the art of fielding, like I knew that it would have the reception it did and sell five hundred thousand copies and and all that.
0: I by, by Chad, we should say the art of fielding by Chad Harbach, which is a bestseller. Yes, but um, it's not. It's not about seeing the future, like.
1: Because your, your feelings about something kind of help create that future in a way, um, so but but like there's never any doubt that you love it, and there's never any doubt like that you are kind of connecting to it in such a way um, that you you want to talk to other people about it, or you want to talk to the author about it, you know that you like get what they're you get what they're they're trying to do with the book, um, and that you know it's like that you you see like you see what it's going to be in the world even better than they do in a way like that's kind of the feeling I I, I have when I really really respond to something.
0: And it's um, and it's, and like it's, a good, were, it's a quick process like or at least like in my experience it seems like when yeses happen in the world of. Uh... Books or in, you know most of the culture industries probably um, you know it, it seems like yes usually is fast and no takes longer somehow and sometimes no's quick but usually it's just because like oh we'll tell them no later you know but it seems like yeah, well, when, sometimes it, yeah sometimes but it just no it just, can it, it, be it well, just, no sentence, yeah it seems like it seems like like a deal often happens quickly when something is really. And especially when a book gets a really good ride, like The Art of Fielding did. Am I misrepresenting this? No, yeah, no, not at all. I mean, um, it, it, uh, yeah. I mean, like, how did that go for you when you like you got that manuscript? How uh, I read that. By the way, I read that Vanity Fair profile um, about that the sale of that book. I don't know how you feel about that. I found yeah. it like to be a really. Like, an unusually interesting uh, assessment of how a book becomes a big, huge hit, especially in the literary realm, you know, the literary fiction realm. Yeah. Uh, that was a very fascinating yeah, I mean, it's funny, because, like, I think uh, some people
1: rolled their eyes with that piece because they were like, oh, it's Keith writing about his best friend, you know, this is so uh, like Inside Baseball. But, of course, like, that piece wouldn't have been written if Keith was not his best friend, because... The genesis of it was that Chad was like forwarding every email he ever got from me or like that, you know, he, like Keith was there for the entire experience all along. Well, he's the only um, he's the only so, person
0: who could have written it.
1: Yeah, he's literally the only person that could have written it. You couldn't have assigned that to somebody else. Like he came to the he like came to his editor with, you know, half the reporting done already. Um I mean I was kind of aghast that Keith knew all the you know, granular details of the auction and the numbers. And I was like, Oh God, please don't put this out there. You know, I'm, it's going to look so gauche. If, it's going to look like I gave you all these numbers. Um, uh, but, but yeah, I mean that, so, so I, I, uh, I mean, I do, I, I think, it, I think it was really well done. I, I and it, it certainly helped the book.
0: So okay. I so uh, I'm, yeah, well, I mean, and I imagine it helped you as an agent as well. I mean, it raised your profile certainly.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Totally. T- okay. I mean, so dude, in, you've and, and no doubt about that.
0: Okay, so and I might be um, forgetting this article because my memory—it's uh, been a while since I read it. But uh, in terms of how you got your hands on the art of fielding, like just to use that as like a prominent example uh, of one yeah. of your clients and and one of the books that you've represented going on to have the kind of success that writers of literary fiction dream of, like you got that manuscript, how you read it, and then you know, I imagine you immediately picked up the phone and said, "Let's do this," or how did that one go?
1: Um, so um, it came to me um, because like Chad and I had never met, but we had um, I had emailed him a pitch by another one of my writers who for in plus uh, one. I was like, sent it to Keith, and Keith sent me to Chad, and Chad like never responded. Um, and and then he like responded to the email like six months later and I was like, oh gosh, I never responded. I'm so sorry, but I'm wondering if you'd be interested in reading my novel. Um, and yes, he sent it to me in my immediate, you know, I was 27 at the time. Um, my immediate response was um, oh, you know, this must have already been passed on uh, by, you know, by Wiley, by Elise Cheney, by like all the agents who represented all the other N plus one guys, all of Chad's friends. Um, because otherwise you wouldn't be sending it to me, you know. I still kind of had this like, I was, you know, I, I kind of had this like underdog instinct still, and uh, and I read it and um, just you know just loved it. I mean, they like they you kind know, of somewhat embarrassingly reprint um, my like one of my emails to chat, um in that in that piece, uh, but I, you know the whole time I was like, this is so good. There's no way other people have turned this down. Um, so I, I'm going to, I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to be competing with every agent in in town for this. And so I kind of, you know, I came to Chad, um, just certain that I was up against, you know, people who were, who were far more appealing choices than me. And, um, you know, when unbeknownst to me, like everyone else who had seen and turned it down, um, so it was just kind of very funny in retrospect, um, like, uh, we were kind of dancing around each other because I, you know, wanted to sell myself and sell the Garner company and, you know, what I thought this book could be. Um, and he like, didn't really want me to know that everyone else had turned it down. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, we, we ended up, um, yeah, you know, we ended up, uh, uh, working together and I sold it. He did like one, one kind of draft. I gave him some notes, and, and he incorporated a lot of, I think, feedback he'd gotten from other other readers he'd had. Um, and then, yeah, we sold it. Sold it three months later.
0: Okay, and it's you know it's just it's, it's just worth pointing out that other people turned this book down that went on to become a massive success. I mean, you hear it over and over again uh, throughout history, you know, literary history. Uh, but it's, it's almost always the case, Brad. It really is. I, I would say that like most
1: successful books um, have been turned down that were turned down by the majority of agents who saw them and the majority majority of publishers who saw them. Why? Because nobody knows anything. Because it's all subjective. Because it's all like it. it, it I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I can't. I can't explain to you why someone doesn't love a book that. I love, because like part of my love for it is uh, a feature of it is that I can't, I can't imagine not loving it, but I am also aware that not everybody loves everything. So I, and I accept that as a given. Um, and I myself have been, uh, you know, have been kind of unimpressed with books that went on to do you know, get other agents and do very well. Um, so it's just, it's just the way it goes, you know?
0: Um, and then how much, like how much of your, how much of your job, because the book's got to register. So you take the art of fielding out and multiple publishers are interested, if I'm recalling correctly. Uh, you know, so your enthusiasm was proven correct. And, you know, in your role as the agent, when you do the submissions, you know, you're submitting the manuscript, you're writing a, a cover letter, uh, like how much salesmanship is involved? I mean, the book has to perform for the the person reading it. There's only so much you can do to twist arms as an agent, right? Totally, totally. Listen, I write really good submission letters, <laughs> but
1: uh, other than that, man, it's just I pick up the phone. I want I want to interrupt what an editor is doing with my phone call. Basically, I want I like I want to pick up the phone. I want to call them, and I want them. To after my call drop what they're doing and start reading the book I, I send them but other than that like the book speaks for itself you know like if they love the book it's not because of my pitch um, you know maybe my submission letter helps them kind of see it in uh, see it in ways they yeah. Maybe it, maybe it kind of adds to what they see in the book, but it doesn't make them love a book that they're not going to love.
0: Right. Well, um, but, but what about now, you know, that, now that you're like a, a higher-profile agent, you've had a lot of success, and you know you mentioned earlier like the Elise Cheney's and the – is it Andrew Wiley? Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. Um, you know, these bigger uh, – these big-time agents who have these big-time clients, like when they submit something – uh, you know, I think that obviously gets more attention from publishers because they have a track record. And I'm assuming that can per- be persuasive to a certain degree.
1: Certainly. Again, persuasive in the fact that, like, that's the thing you take home that night. Um,
0: but they still got I,
1: I mean, Yeah, well, they, and, and they still got to think they can sell it, you know? I mean, I don't think that... Um, you know, I mean, it does matter in the world of fiction, you know, editors like with proven track because fiction is just so subjective. Like, you know, someone like Nicola Raji is a tastemaker. Um, like a novel coming from her. It means like people can be um, that much more confident um, that if they let it to that, you know, that enthusiasm is going to carry on down the line. But it's, you know, it's all tied up. I mean, she, you know, she has great books because of who she is and she is who she is because she has great books. I mean, I don't, I don't think that um, people pull, I think it would be possible for agents with a lot of clout um, to, you know, try to pull the wool over people's eyes. Uh, but I don't think it would last. I, I I don't think you could get away with it many times. Right. Like That's I would, you true. know, it would eventually catch up with you. Mm-hmm.
0: So like nowadays, and part you know, of why know? they're well, I was just going to say part of why who they
1: are they are who they are is because they you know because they are they're good stewards of their reputation.
0: Right. Well, yeah, they consistently deliver. So I, do do you feel a sense of pressure, you know, to keep? to keep upping the bar? Do you know what I'm saying? Cause if you, you don't want to come out with a, a book and, and maybe this still happens. You ever go out with a book that doesn't sell, or are you at a point now in your career where, uh, you can take your time, take things on. And because of your track record, most all of the submissions that you make sell, if, even if they don't go for um, some huge advance. Yeah. I, uh, I, I just sold something
1: like last week. Um, that took me uh almost a year to sell, um but at this point i've i'm I'm back to batting a thousand <laughs> um, You're what? But uh i I said I'm back to batting a thousand <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah so you know I sell what I send out um I don't think it of it in terms of like raising the bar, I do think it, of it in terms of like i um not in a vain way that I care what people think of me, but I definitely like my taste and my opinion is like all I have. That is my professional capital. Um, and I don't spend it unwisely, and I don't, I don't spend it, um, you know, imprudently. And I'm very, I'm very careful about, you know, making sure what I send out um, is kind of up to my standard. Because my standard is important to other people.
0: So do you? you don't ever like you ever, get don't, into, you ever get into a social situation where one of your clients is like, "Hey, I've got this friend who's got a novel," and then suddenly this thing's in your lap and you don't love it, but you're like, "Oh God!" But I don't want to offend my existing client. You know what I'm saying? Because those kinds of things can probably happen in the business, like. How do you, those things happen like monthly. Yeah. So how do you, how do you work against that? Because I imagine you have to be disciplined. I reject them. You do. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, of course. I mean, I don't, I don't mean to sound offended that you'd even ask,
1: but I mean, I don't like that's the path to ruin is to start to, you know, for an agent to start to take things on as favors to other people. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, I don't want to, I, you're right that I don't want to like offend a client. Um, but that's why I'm going to be nice when I turn their friend down.
0: Yeah. You have to. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah, things aren't going to, it's going to come back to bite you. So, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely like cognizant of the fact that
1: everything I, every, every time I, you know, I don't remember the rejection letters I write to people, but they are going to remember my rejection letter. So I'm, I'm always careful. I put a lot of time into being like thoughtful, um, I'm also polite but like thoughtful and 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 to try to convey that i've like engaged with the work so they you know at least think you know they're disappointed but they at least think well of their experience with
0: me right yeah i mean it's tough because the thing too is that you're dealing with volume and you know i guess to, to take the time to really do a a Somewhat lengthy, thoughtful rejection letter. Uh, that's a lot of work, and I guess you owe it to them. Right. You feel you owe it to them, you know, to, to give them a fair yeah. shake in that way. So uh, nowadays you're getting lots of submissions, I would imagine. You have a lot of people who would love to be represented by uh, you uh, because of your track record and your good list and everything. So are you still in a mode where you're actively reading these literary journals and going out and hunting clients? Uh, maybe that 's too strong of a verb, but you, you know what i 'm saying or is it a situation where you know the the slush pile is there, you have some assistance they 're helping you sift through it, and then they 're handing you things that they think that they like, and you know how do you get your clients predominantly today
1: um yeah i mean i definitely I, definitely a lot more of it is people coming to me i mean it 's just you know you you see better stuff um once you represent books that people, um, know and respect and, and like. Um, so yeah, I definitely see better stuff. Um, and, and I have an assistant, uh, who, you know, who helps me kind of triage and, and, um, and, and read that, but, but he and I both still spend a lot of time, um, scouting, um, maybe I prefer scouting over hunting, <laughs> uh, maybe, uh, um, but, uh, and you know, scouting is especially a better way to find nonfiction writers. Um, but it's also just like, it's, it's more, it's, it's more fun because they don't know you're watching. And if you, and if, you know, it doesn't lead me where they never know and nobody's feelings get hurt. um, so I, I, I hope to never give that part of it up, but I definitely do less of it. And I and I definitely can't keep up with um you know, I also have like over thirty clients at this point. It's a lot easier to stay on top of twenty five literary magazines when you have six clients. Um, so you know, the exigencies of the job are just such that like that's kind of unsustainable over the long term. But um Um, but yeah, you know, I still, uh, I still like the new, a public, new public space came in yesterday. I have it in my bag right now.
0: Okay. And so what about like the changing landscape of publishing, which everybody talks about and has been talking about for years and years now, but do you, like, how do you perceive that and how do you plan for the future with that in mind? Like, do you feel like the business is going, like, is it a relatively sustainable, Situation right now, like are you are you really working hard to anticipate changes and um, you know uh, design the way that you operate in accordance with how you think it's going to go?
1: Yeah, I mean, or, or, or yes and no. I mean, like I still um, at the end of the day, it's still how I feel about something, um, and uh, a feeling is kind of inherently non-rational, um, um, but. But I definitely, I kind of think, um, you know, I think, the, I think as a culture, we have more demands on our time and attention than ever. We have more ways to, uh, you know, spend our time and money than ever. Um, and we spend more time reading, uh, just in the, whether it's texts or tweets or, you um, You know, New or whatever, uh, than ever. Um, and I think it, it's harder for a good book to break through all that noise than ever. Um, but I think that, like, the noisier the world gets, the more people will appreciate, um, the kind of sanctuary from that, 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 um, spending kind of, you know, 10 hours in the company of a great book, uh, which itself took an author, you know, uh, usually years to write, um, I think that that becomes more valuable than ever. So I just try to, you know, when I'm reading and when I'm thinking about building my list and taking authors on, like, I really want, I I want the world to need this book, you know? I, I want it to, I don't ever want to think about it in terms of like, oh, can I sell it? You know, is there a publisher who will publish this? Like I want to look past the publisher and think about whether or not like the world needs it and then figure out what publisher is the best way to get that out to the world. So that's all super abstract and philosophical, but I, I, I mean, I, in practical terms, it means that I do take on, um, and sell, send out and sell not that many books. You know, I sold six books last year. Like that's not many. um, that publishers are doing fewer titles as well, and I think that's because like people are realizing that you know it's better to publish fewer titles and get more attention for them um, than to publish a lot of titles that all get lost in the noise. I agree. Um, and 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 that's really hard for writers either who are trying to break in or who have broken in but uh, haven't broken through the noise, it's really hard for them to hear. Um, and it might not be the best thing for our literary culture um, to, you know, have so few opportunities for writers to, like, really, you know, break through and, and, and you know, make a mark. But it's just it's kind of the way it is, you know? Um, uh, and I can't, like... I can't change that. I can't. I can't make that reality different. I and I would be uh, a bad agent if I didn't adapt to that.
0: Well, <clears throat> I think you're doing a good job for what it's worth. <laughs> it seems well, like, you know, and it's been uh, it's been super fun talking with you. I congratulate you on all your success, and uh, I wish you the best of luck. Well, thank you so much, Brad. I really, uh, I really appreciate talking to you. Okay, that's it. That's Chris Paris Lamb. I hope you enjoyed that. If you would like to be represented by Chris Paris Lamb, he is currently accepting large cash bribes. Actually, that's not true. You can query him at the Gernerd Company, but uh, I do have to warn you, it's probably a long shot. I <laughs> don't want to burst your bubble, but you're probably going to get a form letter. I don't know if it'll be a form letter. He sounds like such a nice guy. He's done a great job representing his authors. It was nice to talk to him and get a literary agent's perspective on this whole uh, business. So thanks as well to Gina Frangello. Go get her novel. Go get it. It's called A Life in Men. It is available now from the good people at Algonquin Books. You can find Gina online at GinaFrangelo.com. She's on the Twitter, at Gina Frangiello, and she is also active on the Facebook. Don't forget to sign up for Premium to hear the full hour with Gina. You want to hear that. It's a good talk, and it, it's only two bucks. And not only do you get access to Gina's full hour for $2, uh, you get access to every single episode right there in the app. So go get the free app, and uh, away you go. And if you want a free audiobook download, please remember to visit audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, I think that's it. I've said my piece. Big show today. A lot going on. Thank you for listening. Thanks for investing the time. This is not a TED Talk. I'm not wearing a headset microphone. I'm not making finger steeples. I'm not doing any of that. What I'm doing is slouching in front of a chipped wooden desk uh, in an apartment in Hollywood. And my heart is murmuring from a steady influx of caffeine. Please remember that Elizabeth Bishop died of a cerebral aneurysm. Cerebral aneurysm And that the uh, tail gunner on the Enola Gay Wore a Brooklyn Dodgers baseball cap That's it for now Uh, Thank you again and I'll be back in a few days With another episode With another writerly bookish person I will uh, unleash that episode Into the uh, public sphere I will send it out into the universe And I will then uh, Anxiously await the universe's Response because that's what I do. I send these things out into the world, and then I sit here waiting. Hello?